1: to create a listener account, and in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening, so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat, and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Sarah Tyson, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Vinciane Desprez, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Liège in Belgium. Her new book, Living as a Bird, is just out in English translation by Helen Morrison through Polity Press. Birds sing to set up a territory... But the relationships between the bird, the song, the territory, and the bird's community are highly complex and individually variable. In her new book, Dupre explores the concept of territory from the perspective that situates philosophical work on human conceptions of other animals within historical and contemporary empirical research into bird song and territorial behavior. Following recent theorizing by ornithologists and ethologists, she critiques the popular view of territories as private property and birds as petits bourgeois who gain property rights, a conception grounded in European social upheavals starting in the 17th century. Instead, territories are zones of social interaction with one's dear enemies at the peripheries, where male and female birds alike are active participants in the shaping, reshaping and sharing of neighborhoods bounded in song as well as space this new translation by helen morrison makes Depré's thoughtful analysis of songbird life accessible to an english-speaking audience let's turn to the interview one
0: hello Vinciane depre welcome to new B- new books and philosophy thank you carrie hello to you and hello to everyone
2: yeah. Um, so this is a very, very interesting uh, book, Living as a Bird. Um, as, a, as an analytic philosopher, it's different from the way that I, you know, am used to, and probably many listeners are used to uh, discussing issues of, you know, comparative cognition and comparative psychology and, you know, ethology and all those sorts of things. But, um, you know, it's very clearly informed by, you know, a lot of empirical research as well as an interesting background in, uh, you know, more continental philosophers as well as, um, uh, you know, some that that I and others are more familiar with. Um So it's a very, it was a very interesting way to think about, uh, non-human species and particular birds, uh, for, for me in particular, uh, which I really, I really enjoyed the whole way you kind of, uh, you know, discuss the whole issue of, of territory and how, what, what territory is from the perspective of a bird and its, uh, its neighbors, its species. So before we, we get into the details of the book, um, can you give us a little bit of background about yourself, right? How you, you know, came to become a philosopher and what your general interests are and um, how you came to write the book?
0: Okay how I came to be a philosopher you know I just because I like it philosophy when I was you know in the high school I liked it to read Freud and um, and sociologists and psychoanalysis and so I was thinking about that philosophy could be the right the right track for me unfortunately after finishing uh, my master degree I could not find a job because, as you don't probably know, in Belgium, they don't really teach philosophy, back to that time, because it's not right anymore. But back to that time, they didn't teach philosophy during high school, which is not the case in France, which means that if you have a a philosophy, diploma uh, in philosophy, uh, you probably get very soon and for a long time unemployed. employee. You don't find any job, which, which was my case. And finally, after three years of being uh, unemployed, and uh, I decided that I better uh, get another diploma so I could find a job. And so I decided to study psychology as well, because I, I've been hesitating when I was young between psychology and philosophy. So I, I decided to, take, to, take some, to, take, to go back to university. I was um, almost 30 years old. And I went back to university to study psychology. And I made my master's degree in psychology. What's happened in psychology is that I didn't really get interested by human psychology, which was normally what I should have studied because I wanted to be a clinician. But uh, I've, I, I discovered the, the work of ethologists because we have some teaching in ethology and we have a lot of teachings also in animal psychology. And I decided that it was really what I wanted to study and what I like it. So finally, I, I didn't become a clinician, but I study ethologists and uh, psychologists of animals. And, uh, and uh, because of that, when I, when I finished, my, my master's degree, I had the chance that the Department of Philosophy of the University of Liege wanted to hire someone who has, by chance, the both diploma, diploma in philosophy and diploma in psychology. And I was, we were two. <laughs> I mean, we were only two people having the two diplomas. And I was, uh, and so uh, I, I could, I, so they, 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 they took me. And uh, I began to make research in university. I was an assistant, assistant uh, for the professor of psychology of philosophy. And, uh, and I began to study. And I decided that as I knew pretty well ethology that I could try to do something that really did, that didn't exist really back to that time. I'm talking about the very early beginning of the 90s. And that, I, that as well as you can find philosophy of sciences in physics and in mathematics and in biology and in natural history, I could create some field that would be philosophy of ethology. And so I began to make research in that and had a very, very great chance back to that time, that during my master's degree, I read, I read a lot about birds because I decided to make my master thesis about altruism in birds. And I read a lot of papers about birds because uh, about altruism in birds. And I discovered that most of the birds were behaving almost the same. You know, you can have a, a blue jay or a Mexican jay, or I, I don't remember all the birds I was studying. They all almost behaved the same. But one was very unique, and it was a bird called the with in uh, Arabian babblers, And he was studied by uh, a I didn't know uh, back to that time, and he was not very famous back to that time, Habot Zahavi, who was living in Israel and teaching there. And he was studying babblers for almost 30 years. And when I read the papers from Zahavi, the Babelos really didn't behave like other birds. They were dancing together. And Zahavi was saying in his paper that they were dancing to improve the trust and the reliability of the whole group and of the partners of the group. They were offering presents to each other and they were trying to be altruists because it was for them the way to enhance the prestige that's the way Davi was writing that. And you imagine in the beginning, at the end of the 80s, reading that about primates would have already been extraordinary. But about birth, it was really odd. It was bizarre. So I decided that as I could get a grant to make some field work to go outside in, to work in another laboratory... I asked the grant to go to Israel to visit Zahavi and to observe the bablos with him because I was wondering is it the bablos was so strange or is it the ornithologist who is really strange? And so I went to spend some time with him and with the bablos and with other researchers who were uh, visiting him at the resource station, and I spent a few months with the babblers in the desert of Israel, in, in the desert of Negev in Israel. And I studied birth, and I discovered that you could do field research as a philosopher. And that really interested me. And so after that, I, I kept doing that most of the time.
2: Okay. Well, this book certainly shows that. I mean, in a way, your your interests... Um, uh, have are being vindicated by a great deal of new research um into bird you know cognition and and you know further ethological investigation um so this book in particular is sort of about um the concept of territory um and how we should think about this concept and and then of course how it should be. Uh, investigated right in you know empirically. Um, so can you can you say a bit about the general topic before we get to
0: details of how you do your analysis? Okay I, maybe I can explain why I was inter- why I was not interested in the beginning by territories okay good, uh, <laughs> That's because, fine yeah So I, 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 I was asked two or three years before I began this research I was asked to write a little book for children. And I chose to write a little book about how animals inhabit the world. And it was about architecture and the way of living together or not together. In, in, I mean, all the way. And it was called Le Chez Soi des animaux, being at home for animals. And after I finished the book and it was published, someone in the, the editor, the director of the of the, 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 of the the Actors Suite collection where I was published, told me, why don't you do the same for adults? But it would not be about home, it would be about territories. And I really didn't feel like doing that because I was suspecting, wrongly, but I was suspecting that territories was such a uh, heavy-loaded politically concept that probably I would find much more politics than what I would prefer to find. I don't know if it's clear, uh, but, um, you know, that um, p- territory, uh, you know, if you read, for example, because I read that some books from Robert Ardrey was, you know, making popularizing, popular writing. So he wrote, you know, about the primate and so on, and man, the hunter and so on. And he wrote a book about territories and the book was the was called, if I remember well, The uh, the. The territorial imperative, and it was showing that op- what we think about private property has long, ancient, archaic roots in animals. And not finally, what he does in doing that is saying that private property is the best things in the world since nature taught us to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Interesting. So yeah. That that's what I think that's what I that, that's why I say that it's politically really problematic as a concept. So I was expecting ornithologists, you know, to have this kind of ideological uh path to study territory. So I was not feeling like doing that because I have never been a critical philosopher. I've always studied I've always observed, I've always made research about ethologists or scientists who interest me really because they do nice, interesting, fascinating, great work. And I'm not the kind of philosopher who says, oh, you shouldn't do that, you know, kind of a (laughs) joy killer (laughs) with scientists telling them how they should behave and how they should think. So I didn't want to take, you know, to take an issue where I should confront myself to the fact of being, you know, a kind of Jiminy Cricket in the Pinocchio story. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't think like that. Oh, look at that. That's what we call critical philosophy. And so I didn't want to do that, but Stéphane Durand was the the, the, the guy at the edition. The, the editor told me you should insist. Don't don't take it into account. Other take the real ornithologists, not the people who make popularization of sciences. And the first why I wrote, I, excuse me, I win, was Margaret Morse Nice because I chose her because she made in the '40s a history of the the research that has been. Done until then, which was not a long time because the research became, began uh, in England in the 1920s. The, the uh, so it was only 20 years of researches. It was a little bit more, but mostly it was 20 years of, of researches. And what she said, and the way she was talking about ethologists, and the way which uh, the way she was talking and writing and explaining how did they work, how did they think, and so on, made me really be feel felt made me really felt feeling more more comfortable about that because I noticed that they were so cautious, they were saying. Okay, when a bird is territorial is really not the same as when a human becomes territorial. This is not the same stuff. This is not a problem of private property. For humans, it might be a problem of private property, and not all humans in plus, but for but this is not the problem. They have a lot of other problems and they try to resolve that with having with defending a territory. And so I felt better about that, and I decided to read all this ornithology since the beginning of the story, which means I read first, Elliot uh, Eliot Howard was the first to really um, explored this field. He wrote a very nice book about territorial birds. And uh, I discovered fascinating ornithologies, very clever people, very... Um, full of care, full of attention, full of attention to the details, and full of attention to the details. They make the, the attention to the details that make birds being different from each other. Which means not only different from species to species, but even different from birds to birds. Which was pretty pretty new. I I didn't think that happened so early in the history of ethology. That's the way I began. Mm-hmm. Interesting.
2: So, yeah, because one of the um, uh, interesting comments that you make in the book is that this whole idea of thinking of, uh, you know, bird territory or, or non-human animal territory, uh, mm-hmm. you know, as, as a kind of a correlate of the human uh, private property ownership uh, yeah. construct and mm-hmm. the idea that, um Somehow, you know, animals are are like these petite bourgeois property owners, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which I thought was very amusing. But it's also, you know, in a way, it is very true that uh, Mm -hmm. we tend to think about uh, territoriality as a question of, of ownership, and, you know, rights of possession, and, um, you know, seizing a communal land, right? I mean, These things are very, very human and historically established. Um, And one of the important points you make at the very beginning is that this whole idea is extremely impoverished um, and just, uh, you know, just kind of misunderstands what is going on with birds and their relation to their territory. Could so? Could you say a bit about? uh, you know how you think that particular idea is just badly
0: mistaken. Okay, the first things it's problem. The problem was also that the conception of property, private property ownership that we have here. I think about us modern, as Bruno Latour would say, is that it's a very pretty recent conception of property. It's it is from the 18th, oh sorry, 17th century, beginning of the 16th, 17th century. And it seems that back to that time, before that time, the conception of property, of private property, was pretty different. It was considered as uh, not as individualistic property, but as something that was the product of the sharing. And in the 17th century, we have this big drama, this tragedy, uh, what we call the tragedy of the of the enclosure that happened mostly in England, but also in France, and mostly in Europe. That people, um, I mean, that the the the, the private property, I mean, that most of the land has been, which were common lands until there, people were making the cows grazing together, the sheep grazing together, and the water and the forest and the woods and so on was common property of village, of of collective. And after the 17th century, most of the the land has been, uh, how would you say that, uh, you know, expropriated from people and given to private owners. And the law changed it completely. Uh, and the, 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 even the, the, the philosophy of property changed completely, which means that what we consider as property or as territory today is suddenly from the 17th century, as in its localist, modern European, American-European uh, conception of property, which means that animals in any case couldn't have by any chance, the same conception of property. That, that, uh, we cannot imagine that they have been, you know, influenced by the 17th century uh, philosophy of property, uh, which means that uh, the conception of property is very different from, I mean, it's not even a property. Territory is mostly, first of all, I think, I would say a making A territory doesn't exist. It exists only in the continuous making. And this making is very interesting to observe. It is by singing for birds. I'm not talking about mammals. But for birds, a bird is making its territory, which means, let's take an example. Uh, For example, um, let's take a bird, because all birds are not territorial, of course. Let's take a bird that is seasonally. Territorials, okay. What uh, blackbirds, for example? What will we? What will we do? So you see him uh, or her, but the, mostly males are territorial. Females are sometimes, but less less often than males. They have other duties to to take care of. And you are at the end of the winter, for example. You are probably mid February because uh, the, the the day uh, going uh, getting longer and longer uh, pretty fastly uh, uh, after mid-February. And the birds normally live to in a sort of collective sleeps together is together live with companion and so on. And now in mid-February they begin to go away from the group, each of them, each male, find a place can be big or little. it's what we call a territory. And begin to 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 um, to, to make a sort of uh, uh, how would you say that in English to choose a tree uh, or something high and just stay there and sing and in the beginning ten minutes um, ten minutes by hour and after that go back to the group and after that go back to the territory and so on and sing repetitively. Uh, and begins to 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 fly over the space, like if it would be this bird would would do uh, some painting, you know, some invisible painting with this flying. It's really funny to see. And after a while, he does it more and more often, and finally, eventually, what's happened that he finally stay alone in the territory, and he prevents any other bird to come in, what the ornithologists call the frontier, the border, after that they will call the periphery after the 60s. Another interesting theory came and they wouldn't say border or frontier, but they would say periphery because it's not a real border. But back to the the, the beginning of the research they were talking about borders, and it really defends any intrusion into the territory. So if another bird comes in, there will be a fight. That surely will be a fight until the intruders leave and let the resident alone. And that's what this kind of observation, they are so, you know, bizarre because normally these birds, you know, during the winter, they're so quiet and they get along together and they they have good relationship, it seems, and so on for the Maybe for the social, the very social birds, and all of a sudden they they they, they seem they they cannot stand anymore each other. They cannot support. I mean, they cannot um, they cannot accept to be near uh, each 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 other. This is and so this is what Elliot about decided to study because he says this is the territorial behavior. And it's funny because there, we I mean. Two or, two, obser- two or three observers did the same observation at the end of the 19th century, but the, the word territory did happen very rarely. But with Eliot Award, it became a real field of researches.
1: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off. Hmm.
2: So, um, I mean, this kind of leads to the the very popular hypotheses, and these are ones that that you know I would be familiar with, or that uh, you know a territory is basically um, uh, conceived of in terms of you know. A certain amount of resources. Um, so there's a, a certain food supply. So you try to get a territory in order to secure a per- particular food supply, um, and of course, this is for eventually for for breeding, right? Um, uh, and uh, um, you question that whole. You know, again, I mean, this is all about seizing. Certain spaces and resources in those spaces for oneself and for one's you know mate and you know chicks and what have you, um, and you you find a lot you know all of these sort of standard evolutionary explanations for what territories are for you know and and how they operate all all are problematic in various sorts of ways um so can you can you explain the the problems or some of the problems with these uh you know very widespread conceptions of what the purpose of a territory is
0: okay okay let's say first that for example, the hypothesis, which was, I think, the first hypothesis to be made, it was secure in the food. Um, so, but I think that his hypothesis might be true. Of course, it might be true. I mean, I won't, as philosophers say to ornithologists, you're completely wrong. You don't know anything about birth. So, <laughs> it would be funny, but it would not be, okay, reasonable. But I think that we can formulated in some ways that doesn't need to be a problem of private property. That is exactly how to to say it. And we can say that it's not a problem of securing food, like you would secure something that belongs to you, but securing a space where you're going to feed. Why? Because it is really, for some birds, really more dangerous to go feed outside of the territory than inside it. And for good reason. For good reason, because predators, I mean, because of predators. And because if you go far away, you'd have to leave your chicks uh, alone. And when the chicks are alone, what do they do? But they, 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 you know, they call. And so they call the predator. So it's really better to feed near the nearest possible of the nest. And so this is not so much a problem of securing the food as a private property, but securing a space where you are quiet and when you can go feeding without being always uh, interrupted, you know. And so it might be a very interesting organization of let's go feed the nearest of the nest that we can't that we can. And the second reason, so don't go too away because it's dangerous. You might meet a predator. Don't go away to your nest because if you go away, the, the, the little chicks will scream and call the predator. And don't go away because your territory, you know your territory. Jean-Christophe Bailly, was a French uh, writer, Says something very nice about territory. He said that the territory is the place where animals can hide. And he precises not only the pra- the place where animals can hide but the place where they know where to hide which is interesting because outside your territory you don't know where to hide so territory finally is a place of security and if you consider that this place of security is not problem a problem of ownership finally it's a problem just of organization of the you know <laughs> the way if, uh, birds are going to feed in the period in the the, the, the time during the time where the chicks needs a lot of food in plus, and so a lot of researches and a lot of foraging. So this is the first point. Other theories. What please me? I mean, if we say that instead of saying. Again, that the bird is a petit bourgeois and wants to keep all the food, you know, like a childish. I <laughs> really want to keep all the food for myself. I think that if we explain that, if we formulate that in such a way that makes the bird being social beings, but in some when this time uh, the t- is the time of um, of uh, breeding and uh, and taking care of the chicks. The, the birds need to be quiet. They need to not to be with, they need that no one interfere in that story because they need to be quiet. They need to get the energy for doing the things they have to do and to be alert and to be vigilant and to be careful. And you know, if you begin to fight all day long uh, with other birds, Of course, the predator will come because he will be attracted by the noise and he will be surely successful because when the the birds are fighting, they don't pay attention to what's happened around. So, this is the first reason. Other reason has been invoked, and they probably are true. Uh, for some cases, and this is interesting. what I found very interesting in, in the theories of territory from all these ornithologists that they say that sometimes this theory is, is good for dead birds and sometimes it's another one that would that would that would be explaining um, precisely all so, that bird or another bird, which means that they say that when you have a territory it doesn't have it, when when you have a theory, it shouldn't exclude the other theories. All the theories might explain some cases, or some species, or some group, or even some individuals. And so you have other theories that say that uh, uh, when they have a territory, male can attract females because they, they have to think and uh, the female may be attracted by the song of the birds. So if you don't have any territory, it might be harder to sing because uh, uh, you might uh, attract uh, the predator and you might attract uh, the fighting of other birds. Some say also that the female don't choose males, but in fact choose the territories, um, considering the quality of territories, and that the male so uh, who has a male who has uh, males who have uh, good territories might be more attractive to females which is, which might be also something interesting to consider and also interesting to consider that it's what is the quality of a territory and females are not maybe females are not. Petit bourgeois either. Maybe they do choose the the biggest one or the where the most flowers or the most food in it or something like that. They also might choose and this has been the hypothesis of some ornithologists, they also choose territories. Where males are quiet when they have been with, where they have already resolved the conflict with the neighbors. Because if they don't have a quiet male, a mature quiet male, the problem will be that they won't take care of the chicks correctly because they will be fighting the whole day with the neighbors. So females sometimes may choose the territory not only because they uh, the, the quality of the territory but because they noticed that for example the atmosphere i would say the atmosphere between neighbors is a quite atmosphere and that they have resolved the first uh the, the conflict they had in the beginning of the installation in territories uh, so i don't know see for the or the or the, or the the most for me, the most interesting hypothesis is the, the one from uh, Fraser Darling and um, a little bit after him from Fisher. That's I think that is the most interesting. Uh, it's the most interesting in plus because it doesn't exclude any other theories, which for me is a good quality of a theory that this story may, may, may explain something, and say, but automotive might also play a role. And the theory from Frazer Darling, the, which is very interesting, he said, look, so we are in the 60s now with Fraser Darling. And he says, you know, that he observed, he was a specialist, he has observed a lot of birds living in colonies. And he say, why do birds live in colonies instead of living, let's say, alone or living far to, far apart from each other? Mm-hmm. And he says, because colonies bring to birds the stimulation they need. And in fact, actually, that is true. You know, if you see, for example, the bird, I don't remember the name. Yes, Pink Floyd. Is it a right to say Pink Floyd? You know, this mm-hmm. pink, pink I I, I know, for example, that in zoo, if they have pink floyd, I saw that they give mirror to the group of pink floyd if they are not enough. Why? Because if they're not, I mean, if you have 10 pink floyds in a group, it's not enough because they won't stimulate each other enough to make the biological uh, cycle uh, get um, uh, I don't remember the word. To, you know that the biological cycles cannot take place if they if they if they are not stimulated by other birds. And so, for example, in zoo they put mirror in the front of the birds. So instead of being ten, they are twenty if they have a mirror. You see, and just so Frank Fraser was interested in all these phenomena of the colonies of birds because they, he says that finally if birds in colonies need each other and that's why they choose to live in colonies or that's why natural selection makes them choose to live in colonies is because they need a lot of stimulation. And Franz Fragordali asked, isn't it the case of all the social birds? Don't they need, don't do they need to be stimulated, not only physiologically, but also socially, psychologically, moder- and so on and so on. And he said that finally territories with all this fighting and all this meeting at the what we call the peripheries is in that one of the reasons territories has been chosen by natural selection because it brings the birth exactly two opposite uh two opposite uh, constraints. It it, it allows the birth to you know to 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 respond to two opposite constraints. The first constraint is if you want to make an nest you want to have chicks, if you, if you want to breed with your female, you have to be quiet and all the birds shouldn't be interfering. So you need a territory. But in the same times, you need to be because you are very social, because you are a social being, fundamentally I would say Fraser Darling, you need to still have social contacts, even though you need to be alone with your family. And territory is the perfect means to join the two constraints because you can be alone and you can prevent other two of from interfering in your, in your life and your nest and so on. But in the same time, at the periphery, you can need them. And he says that all this fighting finally. It's more spectacular than anything else, which was already observed by, by a lot of ornithologists. Margaret morse already said in the Thursday that m- the most spectacular was the fight, less serious it was, that it was mostly comedians, actors, that it was, you know, pretend to be. And so, Fraser darling, took that seriously and says, "Finally, they pretend fight, but nobody gets really hurt. Mostly, most of the time, and generally, the fight always ends in the same way. The intruders go back to his own territory, and the residents stay home. And mostly, most ornithologists say that uh, it's very rare to to see." One territorial bird being dispossessed from its territory after a fight, and and so this is and Fisher came and give some more some more um, some I mean give strong give strong argument in favor of this uh, this hypothesis, saying that for example he noticed that in a lot of birds, not all of them, but in a lot of birds. he he, he remarked, he observed what we call the dear enemy effect. And the dear enemy effect is the fact that after a while, after the installation of territory, after a few days or a few weeks, the fights are calming down really, I mean, obviously, and that birds after that sing together, learn to sing the same song together, talk to each other, and fight uh, less and less um, occurring less and less often. Hm:
2: Well, one of the I mean, you mentioned this, I mean, this is sort of part of the theory you're talking about, but um, uh, the whole idea of aggression. Um, you know, you've just sort of explained that a lot of it is really, uh, display and it, and it doesn't, um, uh, you know, and it, and it doesn't end up with, you know, uh, one territory being, you know, taken over by an intruder, at least not, not, not standardly. Right. Um, and, and along the same lines, so instead of thinking of all these, the fighting that goes on at the periphery, um, as sort of genuine, uh, fighting, uh, instead you, you, or, you know, following some of these theorists, um, uh, argue that, um, we should see this sort of behavior as, as actually social behavior, right? Where, um, the periphery is, is, is really, it's, it's not a line between my property and your property, but it's a zone of possibility for social interaction. Um, and, and in that sense, it's, um, it's not all at all a matter of stay out of my, you know, just stay on your side of the fence and I'll stay on my side. It's more like, This is where we can interact, even though I need this little part of, you know, peace and quiet over here. But I also need to be interacting with you. So we never want the we never want that border to be firm. We always want it to kind of be fluid so that there's always something for us to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that we could almost say what Telma Roel would say about her sheep, you know, Telma Roel is a primatologist, a very, very, very interesting primatologist. She's retired now. But after that, she studied sheep, after studying primates for years and years and years, and she studied sheep after because she asked a question just to, you know, I'm just, I'm not changing of idea, you know, but I'm just a, Precising, Mister Maroel. And um, uh, she says, we say that primates are so much more intelligent than every other being, that every other creature, that every other animal. And she says, but look, we all, we ask them intelligent questions. And what did we ask, for, for example, to sheep? Oh, but we ask them, how do they eat? Uh, do mother love the children, the lambs, and so on and so on. And so sometimes, you know, when she described the sheep, her sheep, the sheep she observed for years now, she said that sometimes when they conflict, they internal in conflict, she says something very interesting. She says that sheep are saying to each other, in some ways, I cannot prevent myself to do what I'm going to do. But this doesn't mean that we are not, go- we are not good friends. And I think that it might, I mean, that's why, you know, it's so hard to explain. It was, you know, when ornitholo- the, the first ornithologists saw the the, the conflicts, the conflicts between these births, the territorial birth, they were so impressed because they fight so hard. But in the same time, after a while, they noticed that, in fact, it was no injured and no territory was taken away from own. Resident, not to say owner, you know, let's try not to say owner in that case. And I think that they were, I think that they were impressed, right? They were rightly impressed because when birds fight, they do it, you know. But it was, it would be as they would say to each other in some ways, we have to, we cannot prevent ourselves, you know, we can help (laughs) from doing that. But anyway, we still are good friends, or we can be good friends. Anyway, and, and so this explains that the fight at the moment will stop. So it's a very hard fight, but at the moment it will stop. And when will it stop? It's very interesting that should noticed that. More of the intruders come near the center of the territory, less and less aggressive he is. And more and more you know it takes really the um, attitude of what we call in the theory of hierarchy in animals the attitude of the dominated, and more and more it goes to the center of the territory he wants to intrude, and more and more dominated it looks. and the reverse, the contrary is. The same for the resident bird. More and more he's at the center of his territory and more and more aggressive he is and more and more dominant he looks. Which makes that finally, at the moment, the intruder will change his mind because the other one is so aggressive and he feels so uncomfortable. He feels, you know, he he's taking the role so seriously of taking the role of the dominated, that finally he goes back and uh, leaves the territory. And the fight automatically stops, which means that it's nothing personal. If the birds make the intrusion, as soon as he passes the invisible line for us, which is the periphery or the border, as you want to to call it, as soon as he passes on the other side, the the fight stops completely and those birds go and, you know, go live their life as as if nothing had happened. Which means that it's nothing, in fact, nothing personal. It's just a problem of acting as a role because the territory is, you know, in some kind of mobilizing or convocating this role. It's a kind of something that you have to do and Mm -hmm. you follow the script of the role. Hmm. So I it's kind remember. of
2: like yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of like the territory is a, is a kind of a spatially encoded
0: social yes. hierarchy. Yes, exactly. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. Ornithologists exactly say that Corrad Lorenz, you know, the famous, etholo- the famous ethologist, was the fun- one of the three founder of ethology was saying that uh, the the territory and hierarchy has been the two way uh, natural selection. Has uh, has made possible the regulation of population. I don't agree with completely with that theory, but it's but it seems that anyway, hierarchy and um, territory are very close. I mean, as I, I, some ways, as some. I, I wouldn't say like Lorenz, that it regulated, that it's that it. That it, oh, does it oh, I might explain for those who didn't read Lorenz. Lorenz says that. If only the dominant may have um, uh, some uh, some chicks for birds, for example, may may, may may breed, and if you need to have a territory to breed and to have k- chicks, in fact, the population don't will will not grow uh, will not grow uh, more than in some in, in some limits. Why? Because. Uh, no, I mean, only some pe- some some animals, some male and some females may reproduce. So the, the growth of the population is controlled either by hierarchy because as only the dominant may reproduce, and by territory because only the territorial who did secure a territory may reproduce. I don't totally agree with that theory and most, I mean, a lot of uh, don't agree with that theory. But it's interesting to make together, to consider together that hierarchy and territory are some ways of organ, some means and some very sophisticated means to organize the social life of animals, which is such a complex life that sometimes hierarchy may help them not to fight all day long for every decision that has to be taken mm-hmm. good um so let let me let me ask you about
2: song because uh you know the the book begins with your uh a, a memory of you listening to a blackbird i think uh you know starting to sing and um and obviously the song has a very important role in um uh, in setting up territories, uh, in establishing these social, these, what you call them neighborhoods. Um, uh, and, um, and as you, as you also put it that, you know, not only does a bird possess in some sense, um, uh, or occupy a particular territory, at least for a time, but, um, uh, is also in a way possessed by it, and you know through its song. So, could could you explain the the complicated role of song in setting up and you know sort of regulating territorial social relations? Yes.
0: Okay. This the idea of song. Okay. I I, I will refer here to. Jacob von Hükskuhl theories of Umwelt. You know, Jacob von Hükskuhl, for those who didn't study ethology, is a biologist um, from, ba- 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 German, let's say, German biologist. And w- w- the theories of Umwelt is a very, very interesting theory saying that uh, animals only perceive the world among them uh, be- uh, with some particular sensory mot- mot- sensory um, equipment, which means that, for example, uh, how do a, a tick, let's say a tick, perceived environment if she doesn't see, uh, but she can smell something, and she can smell something that only mammalian produce within their blood, you know, this acid butyric, and so on. So, you have uh, the world in which each animal lives is not the same as the world human lives in or, or the world of a cow is not the same as the world of a bee. You know, the bee, for example, perceives some colors and perceives some things that the cow won't perceive. And the reverse is also okay. But that's not all. Uh, what von Uxkulis say, and it's very interesting, it says that, the, we only the, the each animal only perceive what has signification for them. And the word is perceived only by signifi- by the signification of each thing. So if something doesn't have any signification, for example, let's say uh, uh, a ball uh, or, or flowers for a tick doesn't have any signification. W- the tick will not perceive the flower. You see, the bees will perceive some colors of the flowers. So and so, which means that the 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 the, 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 the animal is a perceiver that w- which which can give signification to things around. Is world From them that Von Ux-Kill says that when animals um, in some, when, for example, animals leaves mark, you know, when dogs urinate or cats leave some odors, or when um, uh, some, some ungulates leave some odors, for example, on, uh, on some trees. Von Neumann says that it might be that animals give some extension to their body, and let's say, that for example, when a spider is uh, waving its net, is it an extension of the spider's body in the in the space? It becomes like an extended body, you know, and. Uh, so I was wondering, following them, that if we could not, and the other influence that gave me that idea is Deleuze and Guattari, One Thousand Plateaus, we could, we could consider that with the song, the birth is extending its own body in the environment, which means that he's, you know, filling the territory with his songs exactly. Which other means that the spider is filling the space with the the web. That's the first thing, and I think it would be interesting to consider because it would be it would help us to understand why the birds sing so continuously. You know. Uh, if you don't agree, and mostly we don't agree, uh, or don't agree, with the idea that the birds only sing to attract females, which is not true because even when they have a female, they still sing. And we, even when they're not breeding anymore, that's the, the, the season of breeding is over, mm-hmm. they still sing. So maybe with the song, they're doing something, not only talking to each other because they are social, not only communicating something, maybe communicating to other. To all the species of bird, we don't know uh, because we don't know much about interspecies relationship. But he's probably also doing making his territory, which makes me think that if the bird sings territory, is probably also sung by its by territory, which means because the territory makes birds think. and maybe the birds finally is territorial because. Also, the, the territory give the birds the possibility, the will, the power, the motive to sing. That's the first thing. And after that, I discovered, because uh, that's more recent research about song, that uh, finally the birds also may probably like singing and like singing together. And maybe that what we assist, to what we assist is probably some sort of dialogue. You know, if you hear a um, uh, black bird, you see that it's really a dialogue with a lot of silence between the song. What we call silence, because I discovered after writing this book that some, some very recent discoveries is that some birds are singing, and after that we hear a silence. But Bernard Faure, who is a musician, compositor, and ornithologist, was recording birds and recently discovered that what we call silence was not silence at all, but birds during what we call silence are come as are they talking to themselves? You know, they're they, they, they doing so softly that we didn't hear. Yeah. And if he did hear it's because he has, uh, you know, the recording machine uh, am- amplified so so much what's happened, that the silence finally was not a silence at all. And so they really ask, what do they do? Are they talking to themselves? Or maybe are they talking to each other? But in such a way, you know, like, I would say secret agent, you know, secret agent. They might be talking to some of them, the closer one, maybe. We don't know, but it's a lot of, I mean, we have a lot of, very interesting hypothesis. And maybe they do both. Maybe sometimes they talk to themselves. And Marsluf, who is a very, very fine uh, scientist of the of the crone, says that he already has heard crone talking to themselves, and uh, they softly talk and nobody hears it. And he says it's like rain dripping or something like little bells. And he was wondering and a few years ago if they were not you know, singing, like, you know, like, like children do sometimes, they sing a little song for themselves when they feel alone or when they're scared or when they walk, like the said, when they walk in the wood and start. Yeah. This is it.
2: Okay. Um, well, we're, we're actually almost out of time. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's, there's, there's so much to, to really discover here. Um, but, um, Before we, before we close, I'd like to end with a question about what you're working on now. I mean, this, this book, um, you know, it's, it's just coming out in English, right? Um, uh, so, what are you are you doing? Sort of follow up work on this book, or have you gone into different directions? What's-
0: I did go in different directions because last year and uh, last year I wrote a book of novels about animals, and uh, it's called in French uh, Autobiography of an Octopus, and it's about uh, wombats. Uh, spiders and of course oct- common octopus and it's novel and it's very inspired by two writers it's by Ursula Kerr Le Guin the novelist uh, because in the compass rose it's a v- wonderful novel which is called cool. I try to remember the title in English with the the, uh, the author from the acacia seeds and all the extract except from the association of Linguistic. And she imagined that in some future there are some linguists who will, will be convinced that animals are not only communicating, but they are writing, and they're writing poetry, literature, lyrics, and so on, each with its own kind of means. So the first discovering she said was that some some ants is one end has been writing on an acacia, on acacia seeds. And it was a pamphlet, pamphlet, do you say pamphlet in English? You know, a rebellion poetry, uh, you, yes, uh, saying, uh, uh, let's eat the eggs and all those stuff. And, and it was so funny for me to read that, that imagine the Tyro language, Tiro from uh, uh, Wild, Sauvage. Uh, the two languages, that imagine that some scientists in the future could imagine that animals write and that they write poetries and so on and so on, that I wanted to, I mean, to keep this association of two linguistics to make them work again. And the other idea was that the Nahawe wrote in Staying with the Trouble, the last chapter, is about the kami, The communities of the Kami, that's to imagine that some people would live with animals in some communities uh, of uh, multi species communities in the future. And I took this both idea and I wrote three novels about the first one about spiders and how do they write and how do they they discover the theory language, did they discover that uh, uh, spiders were writing and giving message to humans? And the second novel was about wombats because wombats make you know build wall. That's the way they, the, the, the the animals knows where they where they they dig, uh, where they uh, the kennels are. And uh, and the, the walls might be symbolic. I would imagine like currents, you know, like a human currents. And the third novel was about that some um, fishermen formed into. In the future, of course, some uh, some pottery on which an octopus had been writing with its with its ink, and they have to translate it, and they, so it will be a lot of adventure before translating in an coming into communities of uh, like the camis communities and people living with octopus and so understanding them and so on so that was the, the the last project and the next project I would like to work about why is it so hard to lose an animal well this is uh, and I would like to so I begin the survey with people having lost an animal dogs and cats mostly because uh, I uh, it's uh, I Companion animals, yes, and asking them why is it so hard and how is it so hard. And after that, I would like to join that that question to the extension question. The, the, the I mean the extinc- extinction extinction excuse me extinction question. Is it why is it so hard and not so hard to lose all these animals? And I would like to cross these two questions.
2: Mm-hmm. Have you have you just curious? Um, have you read Charlotte's Web? Is no. Is that is that available in French? I don't know. Uh, it's 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 about a spider who writes with his web. I mean that's. I
0: know. I didn't know. That's a very
2: crude way of t- describing it, but no, it's a yeah. it's a very famous uh, children's book, actually in English. Anyway, oh. it, it what you were saying before about the writing um, yeah. reminded me of that. Thank you.
0: Yeah, because I might yeah. read it. <laughs> If it's in English normally I should I should be able to read it. Absolutely.
2: Um well we're out of time, but I yes. um I appreciate your taking the time to talk with new books in philosophy about this uh this new translation. Um it's been a delight to talk with you and explore this whole, you know, idea of of territory and you know, just think about it in very different, much more complicated and much more interesting ways than just, you know, the petit bourgeois conception. <laughs> <laughs> but, um yeah, so thank you very much. And uh, good luck for with
0: all the, your work.
2: Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, and good luck with the work that you're doing right now.
0: Thank you so much. Thank okay. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
2: You've been listening to my interview with Vinciane Desprez, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Liège in Belgium. We've been talking about her new book, Living as a Bird, which is just appearing in its English translation by Helen Morrison uh, with Polity Press. This is New Books in Philosophy. I'm Carrie Figdor. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and thank you for listening.